6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 63 through 66. We are in Isaiah, chapter 63. Is that right? So if that's the case, let's turn to Hosea chapter 5. Okay, we're going to explore some uh, off-the-wall ideas tonight. I know that comes as news to you. You know, we're usually so conservative and centerline doctrine kinds of people, but I thought tonight, I'm being facetious, of course, we are going to look at some things that are conjectural. In the Old Testament, I am particularly fond of the commentators that come from a Jewish background. They generally have insights and a feeling for the text that uh, Gentile commentators, no matter how educated, still don't quite have the same insights. One of the contemporary commentators that you should keep your ear cocked to is a guy named Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who is a local, published, delightful guy, excellent materials, and has insights about prophecy that seem to escape the notice of many of the other classical reviewers. Much of the material that I steal is always from somebody, so I'm going to lean tonight on some views that I first, it may not be unique to him, but I first heard from Arnold Fruchtenbaum stuff. And uh, I won't try to build the whole case on, on his viewpoint. I want to share it with you because I think it's provocative. But I also want you to understand this is conjectural. It's, uh, it's, it's an unorthodox kind of view about end-time prophecy. So uh, I'd like to call your attention to the last verse of... Hosea chapter 5. God is speaking through Hosea. In verse 15 he says, I will go and return to my place. Well now wait a minute. In order for someone to return to their place, they must have left it. Does that make sense? I will go and return to my place for how long? Till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. Now, what this verse suggests, God speaking, that he has left his place but is going to return to his place for a while. And he will stay in his place until an event occurs. What event? till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face, and in their affliction they will seek me early. When you get into this text, you discover several things. One is the word offense there in the Hebrew is singular. It doesn't say, you know, till they acknowledge their sins in a generic sense. But until they acknowledge their offense, specific one, a specific offense. And out of this verse, plus a handful in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and elsewhere, there's several passages similar to this one. I'm just picked this one as the typical one. 
that implies there will be an event occur in the life of the nation Israel in which they're going to acknowledge a very specific offense. We're not talking now about passages, and there are many of these, where they are to acknowledge their general idol-worshipping times at Babylon or whatever. You know, as you go through the history of Israel, there's many occasions where it's a, you know, God uh, calls them to repent of their sins, plural, and, and in some respects specific to that time. This passage and several others seem to allude prophetically to another occasion. This gives rise to a viewpoint that we're going to discover in... Well, let's, in fact, maybe at this point what we'll do... Hold your place here, we'll come back. And you'll see why I'm getting into this right now, is let's turn to Isaiah 63. We talked in Isaiah 61 and other passages about the day of vengeance of our God, right? Jesus came the first time to fulfill his role as our Goel, our kinsman redeemer. Became incarnate so that he could walk in the footsteps, in effect, in the shoes, if you will, of Adam, but sin-free. And one of his titles that the Bible uses is the, Jesus is called the last Adam, that is the fulfillment. He corrected, so to speak, or paid for the error that Adam accomplished and devolves upon us, the disease we call sin. So by going to the cross, he performed his role as our kinsman redeemer. And we talk a lot about that throughout the Scripture. We see it modeled again and again and again throughout the Scripture. The classic example, the colorful, beautiful, eloquent example being the book of Ruth, the time of the judges. In that incredible story, Boaz plays the role of the hero there. He's the kinsman redeemer. And by his act of redemption under the Levitical law, he accomplishes the return of Naomi to the land, Naomi being, in effect, a type or an allegory or a model, if you will, of Israel. And at the same time, he also takes unto himself a Gentile bride by the name of Ruth. And there are many, many details of that beautiful story that are not only a beautiful love story, but even more than that, a foreshadowing essential to our understanding of Revelation 5. You really won't understand Revelation 5 unless you really understand the book of Ruth. But there Jesus is, in his first coming, fulfilling the role of our Goel, the kinsman redeemer. And the libraries are full of books commenting on his role as our Goel, our kinsman redeemer. And we call him our redeemer, among many other things. But there is another role that he is to fulfill. The kinsman had two roles. To his family, he could be the kinsman redeemer. To the enemies of the family. He was the avenger of blood. That's a portrayal of Jesus Christ that we don't dwell on much. And yet, the Old Testament and the New is loaded with those perspectives. And we get a whole additional view of what the Mashiach Nagid is all about, what the Messiah the King is all about. One of those glimpses occurs in Isaiah 63. Verse 1, who is this that cometh from Edom? Now, Edom is both a place, but there's also a pun involved. Edom is the land of Esau. Edom is a location. But the word means red. 
And you'll see why it's a pun. It's a colorful pun as we go here. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? Now you should understand something else. Basra is an alternative name for a place that's also known as Petra. As Petra. This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Who do you suspect is being talked about here? Who is this that is glorious in his apparel? Now again, in the prophetical idiom, apparel usually speaks of righteousness or lack thereof. Our garments are as filthy rags. We'll use that until we get to chapter 64 and I'll tell you what it really says. Well, I'll tell you now. It means, the word in the Hebrew means used menstrual cloths. The King James translators were a little kind to you about picking some euphemisms. That's our righteousness. Filthy rags is saying it politely. Isaiah was actually a little more graphic than that. What's his righteousness? Always as white, in some cases shiny. See, the idiom of the apparel alludes to the righteousness. Well, who is this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? So you can make a guess already who is in view here. I who speak in righteousness mighty to save. Well, now that sentence clarifies the scope of this verse, doesn't it? I, first person singular, who's speaking? God. I who speak in righteousness mighty to save. Who is that? The Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah. Jesus Christ. None other. Not only does it point to him, there's no one else that qualifies in those shoes, right? Who is this that cometh from Edom? Well, what's... See, it's an interesting question. What's Christ doing coming from Edom? With dyed garments from Basra. This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness mighty to save. Why art thou red in thine apparel? And thy garments like him who treadeth in the wine fat. Now you and I aren't familiar with that procedure. But we could sort of imagine it, having a bin of grapes and going in there and stomping the grapes to get the wine, right? Now what do you suspect happens to the clothes you're wearing if you're in that particular task? They get splattered with what? Wine fat or the redness, if you will, of the wine, right? That's what this looks like. It's an analogy. Hmm? Then the answer comes. I have trodden the wine press alone. And by the way, what wine press are we talking about here? There's another idiom in the scripture speaking of God's wrath. Exactly right. Pouring out. The, it's a strange idiom for our ears, but the idea of bowls pouring out wrath is a very common idiom in the scripture. And in fact, Revelation climaxes with seven bowls. Vials in the King James, the three words we both, of God's wrath being poured out. The book of Revelation has hundreds, not a few, hundreds of sevens. The seven sealed book, the seven letters. In our commentary notes, we've got, I've forgotten how many, dozens of these, these uh, examples. Of course, the, the famous ones are the seven seals of the, the seven sealed book. The seventh seal gets organized apparently into seven trumpets, right? The seventh trumpet leads to the seven angels with the seven bowls of God's wrath. That's the climax of the book of Revelation. They, they pour out these bowls. The climactic order of those bowls being poured out, the last one is poured out 
upon the air. If you're reading Revelation, what's all that about? What you have to keep in mind is who is the prince of the power of the air? See, it's actually being poured out in a sequence that's climax climaxes by Satan's throne. So this idea of pouring out the wrath, sometimes spoken as the wine of his wrath, it's a strange idiom to our ears, but a common one in the idioms of the, of the uh, Levitical uh, alphabet here. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the peoples there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger. Hard to imagine Christ angry, isn't it? I mean, you and I are so conditioned by so many of the narratives in the gospel. You know, we always see Christ compassionate, forgiving, blessing, healing, right? Yes, he gets angry when he drives the money changers out. That happens a couple of times. We see him use fairly strong language to the Pharisees. But we generally don't view Christ as angry, do we? Is he going to be angry? Well, let's read on. I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments. And I will stain all my raiment. Whose blood is splattered on his garments in this idiom here, this vision here? Not Christ's blood. It was shed on the cross 2,000 years ago, roughly. Whose blood is on his garments? The blood of his enemies. That's a strange idea, isn't it? For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, verse 4, and the year of my redeemed has come. He's paid the price. He purchased the title deed. To use perhaps a sloppy idiom, I'm going to say the planet Earth is an escrow. He's got title. He's purchased it on a cross. The usurper is defeated and knows it. But he's like a wounded animal. Doesn't stop fighting just because he's mortally wounded. But is the victory certain? Absolutely. Has Christ taken possession of that which he purchased? No. Except in some ultimate title sense. Who's running around running things on this planet? The prince of this world. Another title of an angel gone wrong. Huh? But the day will come when it is his duty, his commitment, to take possession of that which is his. And there are many parables he told of the remote land order coming back to regain what he left. The day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. I will tread down the peoples in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury. And I will bring down their strength to the earth. Wow. Heavy-duty stuff, isn't it? Let's just pause here and pop back to Revelation 5. Just this is all, this is the refresher of what I'm sure you've heard before. And if not, I do invite you to really do a study. I'm one of these weird guys that when I run into a new Christian that really wants to learn the Bible, 
said, you, Chuck, where should I start? Gospel of John, good ground. Book of Genesis, not bad. Lots of places. My favorite, book of Revelation. <laughs> Sounds crazy, doesn't it? But I've never seen it fail. You can't just read it and get it on your own because it depends too much on understanding the rest of the Bible. But it's the only book in the Bible that has the audacity, if I can phrase it that way, to say, read me, I'm special. No other book of the Bible says, hey, read me. Lots of places says, read the Word of God in some collective sense. Only one book has the, I don't know what other word, audacity to say, hey, read me, I'm special. Blessed is he that readeth this book. Not once, all through the book. Why do you get such a special blessing from Revelation? And notice it's singular, not plural. You can always tell that somebody hasn't studied because they say revelations. Don't fall into that trap. It just betrays that you haven't read the book. Because the first sentence tells the whole story. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It's singular. It's the revelation of a person. Which God gave unto him. Unto whom? Jesus Christ. What? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him. And it's my suspicion that this somehow implies a point in which he regained his full knowledge of his mission. See, when he became incarnate, the presumption I'm making, I'm not a theologian, is there were some things that he didn't know that the Father did. For example, he says, no man knows the day nor the hour, not the angels in heaven, not the Son, but the Father only. That's a strange verse, if for no other reason, it indicates there's something at that moment at least, the Father knew the Son didn't. Now, is that true today? I don't think so. I think he has all knowledge. But I think there was a point at which he regained, and that's what I think the book of Revelation is recording. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, and he sent and signified it, rendered it into signs, unto his servant John. The reason the revelation is so mysterious to us is it's all in code. But every code is explained in the Scripture. If you know your Old Testament, you read it comfortably. The reason we stumble is that we haven't done our homework. But that's one of the reasons it's such a blessing. Because if you go through the book of Revelation with a guide, a good concordance is enough. But it's even better if you have some tapes or commentary from someone, by anybody, who really takes the Bible seriously. I'm not talking about someone who allegorizes it. I'm not talking to someone who spiritualizes it as a... Another way of saying the same thing. I'm probably someone who takes the Bible seriously. God says what he means and means what he says. And every time I have made a mistake in my understanding of the Scripture, and there have been many times, it's always when I didn't take it literally enough. But the point is, uh, by going through that, I encourage you, those of you that might be led to do that, don't hesitate to undertake a personal study of the book of Revelation. And get, get tapes or commentary by someone you're comfortable with, Chuck Smith, Hal Lindsey, or whoever, and go through it. It'll be the most incredible blessing of your life. And I suggest if you finish that and you survive that ordeal, <laughs> of course it'll be a blessing. Going to Genesis from there is not a bad move. Because everything that's finished here started there, and you'll understand Genesis only after Revelation. And then as you go through various books of the Bible, you come back to Revelation after, say, a few years, and you'll understand it like you never understood anything before. It's an incredible experience. But anyway, getting back to Revelation 5, just to, there's this, we see this throne in heaven, and John's caught up there, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. 
And I saw a strong angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose the seals? And if you study this carefully, there's lots of reasons we believe this scroll is a title deed. And that leads to a whole other study. I won't get into that. It's title deed of what? The earth? Maybe even more than that. Maybe the universe. But it's, it's apparently the title deed of that which Adam forfeited. And verse 3 says, And no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the scroll neither look on it. Notice that it has to be a man. Not an angel, not a cherubim, no man. It has to be a kinsman of Adam. That's why Jesus Christ was incarnate. That's why he's born of the Virgin. So that he could be in the role of our kinsman redeemer. But no man was found worthy. That's the generic. There would be fortunately an exception. John understood the significance of what's going on. You and I might be a little mystified, but John understood. He says in verse 4, I sobbed convulsively. Because no man was found worthy to open and read the book and neither look on it. John understood the significance. Does that mean the earth and man is lost forever? No, no, no. Verse 5. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That's one of the titles of Jesus Christ introduced in Genesis chapter 49, verse 9. The root of David. Root here in the sense of the family tree. Sounds like a pun, but it is. You know, it's the root of the tree. Who? David. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the, the root of David, both titles of Jesus Christ. And by the way, Jewish titles of Jesus Christ. Hath prevailed to open the scroll and to loose the seals. And I, John, beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood the Lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, idiomatic, of course, which are seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And by the time you get to chapter 5, we've identified all of those earlier in the book as to what those mean. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. And the whole book of Revelation from chapter 5 through 19 is what happens as he performs the role of the kinsman redeemer, which includes the role of the avenger of blood. And we go through with the seals being opened and the trumpets being blown and the bowls being poured out. And we, this all climaxes in chapter 19. So we might pop over to chapter 19. I love verse 10. Let's just start there. I fell on his feet to worship him. This angel said, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's an interesting principle to remember. Every prophecy in the scripture, whether it's a, it's a major passage announcing some big thing or whether it's a subtle hint by some idiom in, in the Levitical law, they all point to whom? Jesus Christ. Tabernacle sat on sockets of silver. What is silver Levitically? The blood. The redemptive coin, redemption coin. What is the tabernacle? What, what does it rest on? Blood, in effect. Even Judas uses that idiom. When he throws the 30 pieces of silver back in the temple and says, Behold, I have betrayed innocent blood. Every little subtle detail points to Jesus Christ. Verse 11, I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse. My daughter loves this passage. See, it proves horses are in heaven. I saw it heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. You've got to be kidding. Who's faithful and true? There's only one. Who is the faithful and true witness? 
Huh? Are we keeping you up? <laughs> Who is the faithful and true witness? Jesus. Jesus. Okay, I just want to see if we're together. Okay. Thought maybe I got to the wrong meeting here. And in righteousness he doth judge. That's no surprise. And make war. Hey, that's a surprise. When's the last time you remember in the Bible that Jesus Christ was armed and making war? Jericho. Very good. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. No, he didn't. Jesus did. Read the last few verses of chapter 5 of Joshua and you'll see who really fought the battle of Jericho. The captain of the Lord's host with a sword drawn. Joshua challenges him. Are you for us or our enemies? He says, take off your shoes. You're on hallowed ground. And Joshua worships him. Not like here where the, there's an angel earlier in verse 10. See thou do it not. Angels never allow themselves to be worshipped. There's one exception. He got into a lot of trouble. <laughs> but the one in chapter 5 commands worship and in fact uses the very phrase that Moses was confronted with in the burning bush. Take off your shoes, you're on hallowed ground. Why was that phrase used in Joshua 5? So Joshua would recognize the same guy. The voice of the burning bush. Who fought the battle of Jericho? Jesus did. In what's called, if you don't understand something, the way you cover that up is give it a big label. Call it a theophany. So you drop that at your bridge club and they figure you know, see. And one of these old strange Old Testament appearances of, of the, the second person of the Trinity. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Whose blood? His enemies, right on. And his name is called the Word of God. Interesting title of Jesus Christ. John uses it to open his gospel. The first three verses of the Gospel of John are the third genealogy of Christ in the Gospels. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.